Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. It's, again, so great to be with you. Kids, it's great to have you in the house. Welcome. And uh, everybody online, also welcome. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance Church, and I am so glad you're here. You might be part of our church family. You might call First Alliance kind of home as your home church, but you might not be. You might be a guest here. You might be visiting Or you might be just thinking about faith and what your life might look like if you took Jesus at his word and started to put your trust in him. We're so glad you're here. We're a church, just full disclosure. We want to go deep into Jesus. We want to go deep into his teaching. We want to go deep into his life. Uh, And then we want to reach wide with his love in our city, in our community. So welcome here. Um, We're going to get into the word today. And uh, last Sunday, we started a four-part series called Pray, P-R-A-Y, where as we turn the corner on a new year, we're considering this practice called prayer. And as you hear that word, that might be something that makes you a bit nervous. I think prayer for a lot of us is something that we have deep longings for, but sometimes we don't know how to like actualize those longings and live the life of prayer that we would want to live. Um, So we're considering prayer, and there's lots of ways to pray, lots of ways to break it down, but we've been breaking it down in this way so that it's kind of portable and you can take it with you. Uh, Pray is to pause, to rejoice, to ask, and to yield. Very clever, hey? (laughs) We didn't make that up. Um, this, is, this is a commonly used thing, but we're looking at pausing, rejoicing, asking, and yielding, and tonight we're focusing on rejoice, um, this part of prayer wherein we rejoice, uh, we adore, we praise, we enter into wonder and awe, and I think that's something that maybe gets lost in our culture of cynicism Uh, and in our own human nature, where we're so prone to complain. So would you open a Bible, um, whether that's on your device or one of the hard copies here, please at home open a Bible as well to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, and we are going to dig into this text this evening. So Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, and and let's give ear because this is God's word to us. It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness or your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Uh, Living God, I ask that you would send your spirit upon us, the same spirit that inspired Paul to pen these words. Holy Spirit, would you come and illumine our hearts and minds? Jesus, would you come and be present to us this evening as we hear your word to us by your spirit and as we gather around your table. Be present. Show yourself to us and show us the kind of life you have on offer as you open the door to your kingdom, as you open the door to the presence of your Father through your death, your life, and your resurrection. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. 
Amen. You know, as we're starting a new year, I imagine most of us uh, have some longings. And we would like to start, if possible, this new year on the right footing. Um, Maybe some of us have a resolution already in mind. Maybe some of us have endured enough failed resolutions to not even try. Um, And uh, as we come to the new year, I actually believe there is something we can do that we're going to consider this evening, something that we can do, um, a step that we can make, that will help us enter the new year in a good way on the right footing, and, and that is to rejoice. Um, and in that word, you can hear that word joy. Can you hear the word joy in rejoice? Uh, rejoicing is founded on joy, and rejoicing really is kind of packaging our joy and offering it back to God as a response, whether that's through adoration, whether that's through praise, whether that's just in like the, the quiet leanings of our spirit. It doesn't always have to be words. We can rejoice deep inside without even saying a word. And you probably noticed in our text today that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then for emphasis, in case we thought he was just kind of kidding or not being serious, he says it again. I say it again, rejoice. He says it twice, and so we should listen up. And did you notice that this is not a suggestion? Did you notice that he, was, he doesn't say like, oh, maybe you should kind of rejoice? Uh, no, this is actually a command. You know, I know today we don't really like to get commands. We're sovereign selves. We like to, you know, be in charge of our own life. But this is a command that comes to us. And so we're going to camp out with this command to rejoice. And we're going to see why the Bible insists on it. Why would Paul write this to disciples of Jesus then and today? And as we do that, I hope... We're not just going to discover the power and motivation to do it, but we'll also see how compelling a life of rejoicing is. So why? Why the command to rejoice always? The first and fundamental reason is this, because of the Lord. We rejoice because of the Lord. Uh, The text does not say rejoice in general. The text says rejoice in the Lord, as in the reason, the foundation, the source of our rejoicing and the object of our joy is the Lord Jesus. This challenges a lot of our assumptions about rejoicing, right? In our day and age, it's common to to think that, um, you know, we will rejoice once we have a reason to rejoice, Right, that I will rejoice once my circumstances are giving me a reason to experience joy or be happy. Um, right? That's one of the illusions in our culture, and sometimes it can leak into our own faith and walk with Jesus, that, that I will rejoice once my circumstances line up. I mean, think about it. I will rejoice when I'm less busy. Right? Who hasn't thought that one? Uh, I will rejoice when I'm out of debt. I will rejoice when I'm done high school or elementary school or whatever. I will rejoice when I found the person I'm going to marry. I will rejoice when I own a house. Shout out to you millennials who just really want to own a house. I will rejoice once I have a baby. And then for the tired parents out there, I will rejoice when those babies grow up and they're out of the house. And then for the empty nesters, you'll rejoice when those babies have their own babies and they finally need you again. I'll rejoice when this pandemic ends. I mean, how many of us thought that in March 2020, 
we would still be in a pandemic heading into 2022. And I want to be sensitive and compassionate here because we have deep longings. There are deep things in our life that we want to see happen. But let me just say that you could wait your whole life for those circumstances to line up. And Jesus wants you to have life now. He wants you to have the kind of life that is filled with joy and that rejoices now. And and that life does not hang on our circumstances. The life that Jesus has on offer is far more robust. It's far more resilient. The reason we have to rejoice is the Lord himself. And let me just say, all of our experiences are own, right? Suffering is relative. The hard stuff we go through, we can't fully understand what another goes through. But I just want to say that as Paul writes these words, he knew a thing or two about suffering, When he wrote this letter, and this is a letter where the word joy appears seven times, which is kind of a big deal for a very short letter. It's called the epistle of joy sometimes. But when Paul wrote this letter, he was not on a silent retreat on a beautiful mountainside being served organic meals and optional yoga classes. He was in jail. He was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And let me just say, jail in any era is is kind of a rough place. But let me tell you, in the ancient world, in jail, you could not get a degree from Queen's University, okay? Uh, They didn't even serve you food. You had to rely on your family or your circle of friends to actually bring you food in prison, or quite literally, you would just rot there. That's where Paul was. As he wrote this letter, he was awaiting a sentence which had the strong likelihood that he would be executed, and he was a smart guy. He, he wasn't naive. He knew the hot water that he was in, and yet he experienced for himself deep joy in the midst of crisis and in the midst of this trial because he discovered the secret to joy and rejoicing. It's to rejoice in the Lord, not in his circumstances. William Barclay says it well. He says, Christian joy is independent of all things on earth because it has its source in the continual presence of Christ. Christian joy has its source in the continual presence of Christ. And that's what Paul says. This is the reason why. Check it out in verse 5 if you look in your Bible. Um, He says, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation. I'm sorry, rewind a verse. Verse 5, let your gentleness or your reasonableness be evident to all. And check out what he says. He says, the Lord is near. What's up with that? The Lord is near. Right? Christian joy has its source in the continual presence of Christ. And there's two horizons on Paul's mind here as he talks about the nearness of the Lord. First, he's saying that Jesus is near now. He is here now. And you might be looking around in the room and saying, hey, I don't see Jesus. Where is Jesus? That's because scripture tells us that when Jesus died and rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sent his spirit. He sent his own personal and powerful presence to be uh, with and in his disciples. So that by his spirit, Jesus is present now. The Lord is near. And this is a reality that prayer brings us into. Because how many of us go about our days kind of forgetting the nearness of the Lord? Right? 
Prayer, pausing, and rejoicing is about becoming aware of the presence of God, of the nearness of the one who is with us. So the Lord is near now. But that second horizon that Paul is talking about here is actually really important too. Um, Paul is saying that the Lord is near in his coming again. Okay, let me explain that. Because the Bible speaks of a day when Jesus, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, will return to earth bodily in glory, in his resurrected glory. Okay, he's going to come again. And he's going to bring judgment on evil. And the kingdom which he inaugurated in his earthly ministry will be consummated and come fully. Here's the good news, friends. The world isn't just going to spin madly on. Uh, This pandemic the violence and turmoil we see in the world, the inner emptiness we sometimes feel will not have the final word. Jesus is gonna come. And in the words of Samwise Gamgee, everything sad is going to come untrue. And this final redemption when Jesus comes will be all the more great because what's been broken and lost will be remade and resurrected. The Lord is near, rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice because he's near now and his coming is near. He is coming soon, my friends. That is the first reason. This is the bedrock reason why we should rejoice. We should rejoice in the Lord. I mean, just today, I saw pictures taken from the Hubble telescope this year. And, you know, these were pictures of nebula and galaxies and stars 250 million light years away. I mean, come on. It was astounding the vastness of this God. Let's pause and let's rejoice in the Lord who made us, who is majestic and who is near. The second reason we have to rejoice is, and I I put it very simply and crassly, because it's good for us. It's good for us. And I just want to be clear, this is not like the cause for our rejoicing, but it's a byproduct of a life that rejoices in God. We should rejoice in the Lord because he himself is worthy, but we should also want to cultivate rejoicing as a habit of our souls because it's good for us and it shapes us in really good ways. Uh, and I'm not just trying to dress this up to sell this to you so that it, you know, it sounds like it's benefiting you. I'm not appealing to you know, our selfish consumeristic nature here. Um, our text spells out the byproduct of a life that rejoices in the Lord and and through that rejoicing in this habit of prayer brings him our anxieties, brings him our troubles and our requests in prayer. Check out verse seven, it says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The byproduct of this kind of life of peace uh, of, of, of rejoicing is peace, it's shalom, it's harmony of your soul, it's God's peace more and more coming to define your life. And even in, in the words of the verse, uh, that God's peace would defend you, that God's peace would guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, again, in Christ, the presence of the one who is near and is near to coming again right? It goes out saying, right? We long for that kind of peace. Don't you long for that kind of deep bedrock peace? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe there's a God or not, this is what we long for. So how does prayer connect to this? 
So prayer is a practice. We've been talking about that. It's something we do, but prayer, as we do it, also does something to us, right? As we do prayer, it does something to us. And this is actually a really important aspect of what it means to be formed as an apprentice of Jesus, what it means to embark on the adventure of spiritual formation. And don't let that big word, spiritual formation, kind of scare you off. Let me just explain what that is. Spiritual formation is the process by which we are formed into the image of Jesus as we follow his teaching, as we walk in obedience, and as his spirit transforms us. And let me just say, we're all in a process of spiritual formation. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we're all being formed by something. The question is not, will I be formed? The question is, what am I being formed into? Right? And every single human on the planet is either being formed into the image of Jesus to become more fully human, or on the flip side, they're being deformed by sin and disordered desires. Right? The text spells out this principle that, that prayer as we do it does something to us. And then the broader principle is this. Everything we do does something to us. Everything we do does something to us. And I, I'm indebted to John Mark Comer and his book, Live No Lies. We might say that this next section of the sermon is brought to you by John Mark Comer and his book, Live No Lies. All right, so everything we do in life does something to us, however small. This is a principle we can see at work in the world. Call it reap what you sow. You know, call it what goes around comes around. You might call it the law of returns. Every choice you make has a shaping influence on you. Um, whether it's shaping you to becoming a person of love or a person of unlove, right? This is true about what we do with our money, right? Every decision you make to be stingy or generous further pushes you in the direction of either stinginess or generosity. It's true of how we invest in our relationships. It's true in how we engage with church and the family of God. You, you, you get out what you put in, right? And it's true of how we cultivate our souls and our inner life with God. See, there's a progression to our choices. Our choices don't just remain kind of alone choices. Our choices become habits, right? If we make a choice often enough, I don't know, is it 21 days to form a habit? If you make a choice consistently over 21 days, it forms into a habit. And that habit, in turn, shapes your character. And I think Paul's desire here in commanding us to rejoice in the Lord, and notice that word always. In the Greek, it means always. That's it. Just all the time. And so what he's getting at here is that he longs for this choice to rejoice, to be formed into a habit of our souls, that it would almost be like a reflex, that it would become as natural to us as, as like breathing, that it would become as, as natural to us as, as riding a bike for those of us who know how to ride a bike. When at first you were like wobbly and you were trying to learn, but now that you've been riding for a few years, it's like second nature. You don't even think about it. You just do it. It's reflexive. That's what he's talking about here. And that this habit would form our character. And that the fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of the Spirit, would grow in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the choice to rejoice in the Lord plays a part in who you are becoming. It plays a part in the kind of person you are becoming, whether you're gonna be a person filled with joy and peace and whether you're at rest and trusting him or whether you're gonna go further down the road of of self-sufficiency and independence and anxiety, you know? And let me just say, this happens in the small things of life as much as it does in the big things. There are breakthrough moments in our walk with Jesus and those are fantastic and beautiful, but they're rare. And nine times out of 10, what God is wanting to do in you is, is a process moment. It's through your daily choices. Your choices that solidify into habits, which in turn become engraved on our characters. One more, one more point here as we talk about spiritual formation. Without God, we can't. I would just say amen to that, right? Without God, we can't. Like, I I can't transform myself in the deep places. But without God, without us, God won't. Without God, we can't, but without us, God won't. God won't, like, force you to become anything against your will. That's not who he is. He loves us. And um, so there's this tension here, right? God's work in us and our participation in that work right? And when it comes to the deep places of us, like those points of our anxiety, of our deep insecurity, of our cynicism or our anger, whatever shadows are presenting in your soul, when it comes to deep level heart change, we do not have the power to change ourselves and we need access to a power beyond us. That's what prayer is about. That's what spiritual practices are about. They're ways we open ourselves to the influence of God's spirit to come and do what only he can do. And you might be thinking, well, I've got willpower, you know? I can do this. That's the spirit of our age, right? You got this. Anyone have that t-shirt? And we do have willpower. And I just wanna say willpower is crucial to following Jesus, but willpower is not enough. Willpower can like, you know, help you stop just repeatedly hitting the snooze button. It can help you choose to eat an apple over chips. Um, It can help you at 10 p.m. to to make that decision to turn off the computer and just go to bed, right? Willpower is super important and super helpful and we need to work that muscle, but it can't do the deep transformation of like generational sin, of the legacy of your family of origin or the healing of trauma, right? This kind of work, the transformative work that God wants to do in our lives will happen over the long haul. But we have a part to, pray, to play to create that environment where he can come in, and that's what prayer is all about. Here's how Robert Mulholland Jr. puts it. He says, in the final analysis, there's nothing we can do to transform ourselves into persons who love and serve as Jesus did, right? Amen to that. I cannot transform myself to be like Jesus, because Jesus is so good, so compelling. Then he says, accept... Here's what we can do. Make ourselves available for God to do that work of transforming grace in our lives. See, without God, we can't, and without us, he won't. It's a partnership. It's a participation. It's definitely not on an equal footing. You know, I don't know mathematically how you would break it down, what the percentage would be of like what God does and what we do. 
but it's way more in God's favor. I mean, on Christmas Day, we were making family brunch, and it was awesome. We made pancakes, bacon, and my three-year-old Jude wanted to cook. And so I was like, yeah, Jude, you know, you're my son. We're in a relationship. This is going to be awesome. And so we cooked, and he, we're both involved, right? Um, and we're making breakfast, but, like, most of the time, he's, like, getting in the way. Um, he, the, the way he breaks an egg is hilarious. He kind of taps it on the side of the pan and then just push, crushes it with his hand so that we had really crunchy eggs that morning. Um, right, we're doing it together. My son and I are in relationship um, and he has access to my breakfast-making skills, which aren't that elevated. Um, but I do it with him because I want to be with him. And I want him to become the kind of person who can cook for himself one day. But, but did Jude make the breakfast? No, I did. Right? Without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. This is why we're focusing on prayer. Because as we head into the new year, and, and you might be thinking, how do I live a better life? Maybe, just maybe, you would like that desire to last beyond January, right? And of all the things that you could build into your life this new year, prayer should be at the top of your list as the habit that will form you to make yourself available to God to do in you what only he can do, to heal you, restore you, to instruct you, to correct you, to make you more like Jesus. The fact of the matter is, the decisions we make in life will either prevent or promote the formation of Christ's life in us. The decisions we make will either energize or extinguish the grace and presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Here's how John Mark Comer says it. He says, it's our daily, seemingly insignificant decisions that eventually sculpt our characters and harden them into stone or free them to flourishing. That's the power of habits. That's the power of rejoicing. And Paul so longs that our reflex would be to rejoice in the Lord always. The last reason why we should rejoice is because it's good for the world. We rejoice because of the Lord. We rejoice because it's good for us, but we rejoice because it's good for the world. Again, this is byproduct this is not the cause of our rejoicing. This is a byproduct. This is about our mission in the world as the church of bearing compelling and joyful witness to Jesus. Imagine what the church universal would look like if we rejoiced in the Lord always. What, what could that look like? If we as God's people, you know, personally and then collectively embodied this habit of the soul of rejoicing, I think it would equip us to live with a joy and resilience to follow Jesus in our cultural moment that we desperately need. I mean, think about people in your life that you know who just embody that reflex of the soul to rejoice. I mean, I've talked with some of you. You're in our congregation. I've sat with you. Some of our older adults with them, every conversation you have, it's always gratitude. And I'm like, you're aging. Things are stopping to work. There's loneliness in your life, and yet you're always rejoicing. And, and let me just say, that's not the case with anyone, everyone, right? That's not the case with everyone, but some of you are there. And those decades of rejoicing in the Lord have shaped you so sweetly. You're the salt of the earth. And it's contagious, Right? Isn't that just compelling? 
when you meet a follower of Jesus who is enduring suffering and is constantly, by some reflex of the soul, rejoicing in the Lord. This is about our witness. This is about our witness to the world. And imagine how that might change the world, right? What might the world look like if the church rejoiced in the Lord always? How might that attract people to Jesus? How might that impact society where the creative minority of the church have this resilience and this deep joy and this deep peace in the face of adverse circumstances, serving, working for justice, laboring for peace, sharing the love and grace of Christ, not asking for anything in return. What would the world look like? What would Toronto look like? We need to rejoice because it's good for the world. This is how we go out to share the good news of Jesus. And even so, we're going to rejoice now as we gather around the Lord's table, which is called in some traditions the Eucharist, which means to give thanks. And so I invite you, uh, if you're at home, please get elements ready, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together in just one moment. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.